Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your love and your grace and for your infinite mercy. We thank you for the message this morning on the bread of life. And Lord, I just pray that, Father, as you taught, as your son taught it 2,000 years ago, there were many that found it to be a hard word, and they walked with you no more. But, Father, I pray this morning that it would be a word of encouragement to know that you are the sustainer of eternal life. The Lord, it's through you and you alone that we can have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that we're desperate for you, Lord, in our frailty. May you be glorified. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Now last week we looked at two miracles. We saw Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. There was a couple lessons I wanted us just to remind you of that we saw last week. Remember that Jesus was at the height of his popularity. The people were pressing in on him. And as he went, the people were pressing in and he had gone away to escape and get away with his disciples to rest. And we know that what happened was, as soon as he went away, that the crowd found him, and they, they followed him in droves. There was 5,000 men plus women and children. Could have been as many as fifteen or 20,000 people. But one of the things I love is the character of the God that we serve. Because even though he's 100% God, as the book of John very clearly teaches us, he's also 100% man. And while he was on earth, he grew weary, and he was tired, and he got hungry. And though he was weary, and though he was tired, and though he was probably to the point of exhaustion, when the people came to him, he would never turn them away. Our Savior loves people. Amen? You know, we say it all the time. The only day we're taking to heaven with us is people. And ministry is all about people. Our six-word uh, philosophy of ministry here at Calvary Chapel is preach the word, love the people. And I believe that was the heart of our Savior. And so as the crowd came to him, we saw the apostles or the disciples, while they were 100% men, they were not 100% God. Amen? And what did they do when they saw him coming? Lord, send him away. Lord, we've had enough already. Just tell him to go back into the city to buy food. But our Savior, in his love and his grace and his mercy, reached out and ministered to the people. Now remember what happened was he asked Philip, what are we going to do to feed all these people? Possibly because Philip lived or had grown up in that area. And, and Philip said, you know what, even if we raised 200 denarii, we wouldn't have enough money to feed all these people. Even if we had a year's wages, we couldn't feed all these people. He was looking for a physical answer to the problem. And the Lord, then Andrew, I love Andrew, because Andrew is always doing what? What is Andrew always doing? What's he always doing? Bringing people to Jesus. Every time you see him in the Bible, he's got someone by the hand and he's bringing them to the Lord. And he brings this young man with his, with his lunch. Now imagine again, you got fifteen to 20,000 people, and you got this young boy with his lunch. That didn't seem like that's going to really have a major impact on the problem. But what we learned last week is that when we want to see God move, we don't wait till the resources are perfect. Instead, what we do is we say, Lord, take what is in our hands, Lord, we give it to you, and Lord, you use it for your glory. And we know what happened was that that little boy's lunch then turned into enough food to feed every single person, and there was 12 baskets of food left over. And right now, if you're going through difficulty in your life and things just aren't making sense, take what you have and put it into his hands because that's where the miracles take place. So we move on from the feeding of the 5,000, and then what happened was the people started crying out to make Jesus king. And we know that the Lord did not come to be king of this world. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he didn't come to be a physical king to men. And so as they were crying out to make him king, they started to press in on them, and the Lord put his disciples in the boat and sent them to the other side of the sea. 
Now, the reason that he did that was, I, I believe very clearly, is that as the people were clamoring to make him king, there may have been some of the disciples that thought that was a pretty good program. Hey, Lord, that sounds pretty good. You know, if you're Judas and you're the treasurer, hey, I'll be the treasurer of the whole government. That sounds great. You know, Peter could be the prime minister. I mean, these guys might have fallen into the trap of listening to what men said, and the Lord instead separated them from the ungodly influence and sent them to the other side of the sea. We know that Jesus then went up on a mountain, and he could look out, and I've actually been on this sea, and those of you who go to Israel with us next March, we will take you out into the middle of this sea, and I'm going to teach you this very Bible study about Jesus walking on the water in the very spot where it took place. Pretty awesome. But as they got into the boat, they started to, pad- they started to paddle across the sea, and we know that a major storm hit. And we talked last week about the storms of, of uh, correction like Jonah had, where Jonah was disobedient to God, and he was put into a storm where correction came, and he got swallowed by a big fish, and he got, you know, barfed up on the, on the shore of Nineveh, where God told him to begin with, go to begin with. If he'd just gone there and obeyed God, he'd have been looking pretty sweet when he got there. Instead, he smelled like dead fish, didn't have any hair left on his body, and was a total disaster. And that's what happens to us. We can either go God's way and get there smelling like a rose, or we can go our way and get there smelling like a dead fish. And so we know that Jonah had a storm of correction, but here we see a storm not of correction because these men were in obedience to God. He had put them in the boat and was taking them to the other side. So this was not a storm of correction, but a storm of perfection. And we talked about how they paddled all night long and made no progress. And then what happened? They looked up and they saw someone walking to them on the water and they were afraid. And the reason they were afraid is they were fighting the storm and when they saw Jesus coming, they didn't recognize him. And the reason they did not recognize him is they were not looking for him in the storm. And the, the application I gave last week is this, that when we go through the storms of life, we need to be looking for Jesus in the midst of it. Amen? Because Jesus walked on the water to come to them, and the reason that he did is he was to show them that their trial or the difficulty they were going through was actually a staircase for them to see God move. He came to them on the very thing that was a trial in their life. You've been diagnosed with cancer? Look for Jesus in the storm. You just lost your job? Look for Jesus in the storm. Whatever's going on in your life, God will use it for his glory if you're looking for him. Or you can continue to paddle over and over all night long like the apostles and get nowhere. And here's the good news of that story. As soon as they put Jesus in the boat, what happened? They were at their destination. You can paddle forever. Put Jesus in the boat. It says when they willingly received him into the boat, they were immediately at their destination. We need to willingly receive the Lord into our trial, into our difficulty, and say, Lord, it's all yours. Lord, I trust you. Lord, I know It doesn't make sense from my point of view, but I thank you that you're with me in the midst of my difficulty. Lord, I'm going to look for you in my storm. So tonight, or tonight, this morning, you can tell I was up all night studying. This morning, we're going to look at the other side of the sea. Jesus and his apostles are going to get to the other side of the sea, and when they get there, we're going to see the interaction that our Savior has with both the Jewish religious leaders and the disciples. And the crowd, once again, will track him down. They'll be pressing in on him. But this time, Jesus will not perform a miracle. He's not going to turn loaves and fishes to feed 20,000. And he's not going to come walking on the water. Instead, he's going to deliver to them the word of God. And we're going to see that the the people that came for the miracles are not going to be so excited about the word. And we have a, a credo that I used to use in youth ministry. What you win people with is what you win people to. 
And many were coming for the miracles, but when they heard the truth of God's word, they walked with him no more. And so we're going to see that very clearly this morning. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When God's word is taught, it reveals the heart of men. So how are these people going to respond? They're going to respond in three different ways. They're going to complain and murmur against Jesus. Then they're going to argue with him and among themselves. And finally, most of them are going to walk with him no more. They're going to leave. And you know why? Because Jesus didn't give them a seeker-sensitive message. Jesus is not going to water down the truth so the people will stay. He wasn't about trying to draw the biggest crowd that he could. He wanted to minister to people's hearts and see lives transformed. You know what, you guys? A healthy church will grow. But because a church is big doesn't mean that it's healthy. You can win people. We'll have the flying Walindas here on Wednesday night. You know, you got a bozo the clown. We could pass $100 bills out at the front door. And we'd have all kinds of people show up. But it's not about drawing a crowd. It's about drawing people into the kingdom. It's about people falling in love with Jesus Christ. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? All right, let's pick up in verse 22. And we're going to look at the bread of life. And on the following day, the day after Jesus walked on the water and fed the 5,000, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? The next day began with a mystery. The people showed up and wanted to know, wait a minute. Now, we saw the disciples getting into the boat, and we saw Jesus walking up on top of a mountain. How is it that both of them are on the opposite side of the sea? How did they both show up here at this time? It was because of a divine appointment. And as they showed up, they they were wanting to hear. They wanted to hear about another miracle. They came to the Lord seeking that. Look at verse 25 there. And it says, Rabbi, when did you come here? The people continued to seek Jesus, but what was their motive? And again, I believe they're looking for a miracle. How did you get here? Tell us what fantastic thing that you did. You know, tell us about walking across here on the water. What did you do, Lord? But the Lord's not going to respond with any more miracles. He's shown them the miraculous, but the miraculous was to bring them to the Word. You know what? Miracles do not actually, you don't really see this in the Bible, miracles do not produce faith for the most part. With miracles always came the Word. And the Word is what produced faith in people's hearts. People would be healed, but then Jesus would minister truth from the Word to them. He would say, go and sin no more. He would transform their lives through the Word. So the miracles drew the crowd, but it's the Word that transformed lives. That's why, you know, we don't really need miracle crusades today. We need Word of God crusades. Amen? Because the miracles will bring the crowd and get the oohs and the ahs, but the Word of God is what transforms people's lives. And so the Lord's going to respond to them with the Word. Look what He says in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He said, you guys are here not because of the miraculous works and because you're hungry for the word. You're here because you got your bellies full. They came to God to be ministered to physically. And you know what? It's an epidemic today. People 
will hear the message, but they'll miss the truth. They'll, hear the, they'll see the miracles, but they'll miss the message. You know that Jesus Christ is our provision. And they weren't coming again to submit their lives to Jesus, but rather to see what God could do for them. You know, sometimes people come to church, I call it crisis Christianity. You've heard me use that term before. They come to God in times of difficulty. You know, things are going sideways at work. I better go to church on Sunday and score some brownie points with God so things will get better. You know, I come to church so that God will love me more. That's not what it's about, you guys. It's about having a relationship with the creator of the universe, and we come to use the gifts God has given us and to allow others to minister to us, the gifts that, he, that have been given to them, and through God's word, our lives to be transformed. And so they came with the wrong heart, they came with the wrong motive, they had the wrong passion, and the Lord saw right through to their hearts and said, you know what, you guys came because you got your bellies full, you were filled up. You know what, there are many churches today they want to water down or disguise the message so it doesn't offend people. Look at verse, and, and, and he didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't worried about, about people walking away with the wrong heart. He was saying, Lord, I want to touch you. I want to transform your life. Can you imagine going into a cancer ward with the, healing, with the, the antidote? Can you imagine going in and having the pill that would heal everybody on the entire floor, but then saying, you know what, I don't really want to give it to them just quite yet because I might offend people if I tell them that they need it. I want to dial it down a little bit. I want to water down the truth. You know what? We don't want to hide the message. Jesus didn't, as we're going to see today. And we're going to see that the reality is when you share the Word of God and you share it with truth and with power, there most people are not going to accept it. If you've ever shared your faith with people, you know that's true. Amen? Most people don't accept it. But we need to continue to share the truth in love. Verse 20. Seven. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Jesus clearly points out that there are two kinds of food. There's temporal food for the body that perishes, and there's eternal food for the spirit that endures. And what the people needed was not physical food, but eternal life. You know, food only sustains us for so long. That's why we eat all the time. You know, most of us look like we could probably fast a little bit and we'd be okay, right? But here's the reality. You know, I very rarely walk by my fridge without opening that thing up, right? That's why it's got hinges on it. I like to open and shut it. and get. I go over there and just look. I'm not even hungry. I just open it up and look in there. And, you know, we want to make sure we're fed. And, we, we, and but the reality is that as soon as we feed ourselves, we get hungry again and again and again. But here's the good news. When we've been fed spiritually with the bread of life that we're going to talk about today, we will hunger no more. We will now be made new creations in Christ, filled with the Spirit of the living God, and we'll desire to know Him better, but we'll no longer need to be sustained by anything the world has to offer. And so these people, he says, you know what? You're seeking after the wrong food. You labor and you work for food that's perishing. You spend all your time and all of your life trying to, to store up stuff that's all going to burn anyway. And the same can be true of many most people today, that we fall into the trap of being more concerned about the temporal than the eternal. In Isaiah 55, it says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? Striving, struggling, expending our energy on that which is temporal. Wealth, physical pleasure, popularity. And again, things that we worry about here and now will have no significance in eternity. You know, sometimes I look at my children, and they will be upset about the littlest thing, especially when they're real young. You know, your, your two or three or five-year-old can pop a balloon and it's like the world's over, right? 
a balloon, right? I mean, it's the end of the world. You think, that, oh, they're going to die. Because to them, that balloon is a major deal. But the reality is that they forget about it in an hour. And because that balloon's really pretty insignificant. But for us, the things that seem so big to us, they're balloons. We pop the balloon. It's not a big deal. In eternity, it's not going to matter. And the Lord says, you're laboring for things that are perishing. You're, you're putting all your devotion and your time and your energy into, into stuff that's going to pass away and won't matter when we get to heaven. He says you're laboring for the wrong things. And I believe that the danger in the American church is not persecution, but prosperity. I believe the problem in the church, the thing that gets our eyes off of Jesus more than anything else, is not persecution. We, we're not in countries where if we worship on Sunday, we're not, we're not worried about someone coming in here with an AK-47 and mowing us all down because we're worshiping this morning. Praise God that we're in a country where we can gather freely and worship the Lord. But I believe the biggest danger is prosperity. And what I mean by that is, you know, getting promoted so many times at work and, you know, having the, the golden handcuffs, I call it, of a, a huge mortgage payment and having all these things that just wear us down to the point we're so consumed with the world that we have no time for God. We're laboring for food that perishes instead of laboring for that which will last for all eternity. It says there at the end of verse 27, for the Father has set a seal on him. When they made bread in those days, the baker would put his imprint on the bread. And so too it is with the bread of life, that the Father has sealed him. And Jesus is a perfect picture of our Heavenly Father. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now back in the previous verse, he says, Which the Son of Man will give you. And then they say, What works must we do to get this gift? Here's the reality. A gift does not require work. If it required work, it would be a salary, not a gift. Amen? It'd be a payment, not a gift. Salvation is a free gift. We do not work for it. Amen? But the sad part is that they respond by saying, what work must we do? Tell us what we need to do to receive this gift. Nothing new under the sun, the Bible says, and the works of God. Here today, let me just name some religions and the things that they say. In Islam, there's five pillars of faith, including fasting for a month every year at Ramadan. You've got to do that. Why? To earn God's favor somehow. The Buddhists, there are eight steps to nirvana. Through self-denial and depriving yourself of things, ultimately, at the end of those eight steps, you're going to receive, you're going to be in nirvana, total peace. Judaism, it's the Ten Commandments plus 200 plus rules of laws and traditions, and you've got to keep those, and if you do, maybe there'll be God at the end. In Hinduism, there's over a million gods, and the awareness comes through, you know, crossing your legs and chanting. Oh, you've got to do works, right? We had a whole bunch of people doing that at, at the vet's hall. And here's the reality. You know what? The works will not bring us to God. It's not us doing things to draw us closer to Him. He reached down in the person of His Son, and He paid the price for us. It's not us climbing up, it's God reaching down. Amen? And He reached down through the, His Son, Jesus. There's also many, you know, quote, Christian denominations, where you have sacraments, and you have works, and you have, you've got to keep all these steps, and all these rules, and be baptized in our baptismal, and do all these things. And sometimes there are even things that are good. We should be baptized, but because it's an outward statement of an inward change. And if you haven't been, I want to encourage you to be baptized. We do baptisms down at the beach. Be baptized, outward statement of inward change. But you do not need to be baptized to be saved. Why? Because if you did, then the cross would not be sufficient. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And so 
these guys say, what works must we do? What good things must I do to get this great gift? And there is no work. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Could there be a simpler gospel message than that right there? What is the message? Believe in Jesus Christ. What else? That's it. Believe in Him. Him crucified and risen from the dead. We're going to talk about this more as we go on through the text. But not works of men, but believing in Christ. And the word there to, for believe is to know by experience. This week, be praying for my boss. His name's John. And I had an opportunity, my dad and Rick Franks, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel Mountain View, are sitting, most of you know I work full-time still, and I'm sitting in my office with my boss, and we're talking to him about the Lord, and he's saying that the, the thing I hear all the time, well, I believe pretty much everybody believes in God. And the reality is that if you define God as whatever people want to imagine, that's probably a true statement. But it's not believing that there is a God that brings salvation. It's having a personal, intimate relationship with God. Amen? Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him in an intimate and a personal way. It's like that Michael Jordan analogy I share quite often. You know, I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I can tell you where he went to school. I can tell you he's got all these championship rings. I can tell you what number he wears. I could point him out on the street. But if I got in an elevator with Michael Jordan, he'd have no idea who I am. And there's many people that know about God. But when they stand before him on judgment day, they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Is he your best friend? Is he the closest relationship you have? If he isn't, he should be. Amen? Because that's where eternal life comes from. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? You know what? Oh, so we don't have to work, so you do the works then. You know what? We want to see you do miracles so that we might believe. And we shouldn't believe because of miracles. We should believe because of the word of God. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. The Jews are still seeking a sign. The rabbis had taught that when Messiah came, that he would duplicate the, the manna coming down from the sky. Now, those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we know that talking about, we've been talking about manna. And manna was God's provision when they were wandering in the wilderness. We know in the Ark of the Covenant there were three things. There was Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, and there was a jar of manna. And manna is a picture of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that, see that as we move on. But they're saying, you know what, rain down some manna. Prove to us that you're God. Well, didn't I just feed the 5,000? Weren't you guys there? Didn't you see it? Didn't you see us take a little lunch and feed the 5,000? You know, he had healed the leper, he'd healed the blind, he'd healed the lame, he had raised people from the dead, and yet they're still seeking one more sign to be satisfied. And the reality is that it's not signs that bring faith and salvation. It's the Word of God transforming people's lives. Miracles do not produce faith. Verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus corrects the Jews' understanding and lets them know that every single miracle originates with God, not with men. They gave credit to Moses. Moses didn't bring manna down. God did. Amen? And you know what? No man should ever get credit for anything that God does. And since God is the one who does every good work, no man should ever get credit for anything. Amen? 
Nobody should say how wonderful we are. You know what? Any gift you have, anything that you're, any ability that you have, God gave it to you to, to Him alone be the glory, the honor, and the praise. Amen? And it's a blessing that God has gifted every one of us with gifts, and we get to use them for His glory and not for ours. But He points out to, that this manna that they were given was given by God. And then He says, The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, who is the bread of God? Who is it that has come down from heaven? Did Buddha come down from heaven? Did Muhammad come down from heaven? Did Hare Krishna come down from heaven? Did Joseph Smith come down from heaven? Did Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker, any of these, quote, prophets of the day come down from heaven? The answer is no. Only Jesus Christ did. And he's the only bread that will sustain eternal life. He is the bread of life. The fulfillment of that table of showbread we've been looking at on Wednesday night. He is the bread of life. Jesus Christ and Him alone. Verse 34, Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. Didn't it sound familiar? Reminds me of the woman at the well. Remember He said, if you, asked, if you knew who I was, if you asked for living water, I'd give you this living water. You would never thirst again. And she says, oh, give it to me so I won't have to come out here and draw anymore. She responds to spiritual truth from a physical perspective. And the same is true here. They're saying, oh, if you give us this bread that comes down from it, we'll never be hungry. We won't have to toil anymore. That would be wonderful. Give us this bread always. They don't even understand what they're asking for. And the Lord is going to quickly clue them in. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am is the same name that that God gave out of the burning bush. Remember when Moses came and said, if I go to deliver your people and they ask me who sent me, what will I tell them your name is? And he said, I am that I am. And this is the same word. He says, I am the bread of life. Later he's going to say, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus Christ is the great I am. And he says to them, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So what must we do to to have that, that hunger satisfied? Make a million dollars. They asked Rockefeller, how much money did you have before you were satisfied? Was it 1 million, 10 million, 50 million? What's the number? And he said, the answer is a little bit more. No matter how much you have, you've got to have more. We set these goals out there and we think, if I just get that dream car, if I just get that dream job, if I can just get promoted, then I'll be happy. Then I will be satisfied. But the Bible very clearly tells us that your flesh will never be satisfied. And there's only one thing that can satisfy that, that as Augustine said, that God-shaped vacuum that's within you. And it's nothing that the world can offer you. What the world has to offer is empty. And so for that hunger to be satisfied, it says in this verse that we must come to Him. Come to Jesus. And when you do, you will never hunger again. You know what? I am so blessed that I grew up in a Christian home. I was four and a half years old in Mrs. Green's Sunday school class when she put up the little flannel board and showed the picture of the cross that I'd seen my entire life. And that moment, I finally understood what it meant. And I can clearly remember raising my hand when she said, who wants to give their life to Jesus Christ? And she took me in the little back room afterward and she prayed with me and she gave me a little white Bible and I went home and told my dad that I'd given my life to Jesus Christ. And you know what? I've never been hungry since. 
You know what? My life hasn't always been easy or perfect from a physical point of view, but I know that I'm ha-ha heaven bound. Amen? And I know that Jesus Christ is my best friend, and he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And if you're here today, and you don't know that for sure, if you've known about God, or maybe you've been going to church for a long time, you know what? Don't leave here without him. He loves you, but you must come to him. Not work for him. Not strive to win his approval, but come to him and say, Jesus Christ, I need you. I'm a sinner, and Lord, I need your forgiveness. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. It's just that simple. You're here this morning by divine appointment. Nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. Amen? God knew before the foundation of the world you'd be here this morning, and he wants you to know that he can satisfy that longing that's in your heart, the, the longing that maybe you've tried everything else and nothing else has worked. So it's more than just an intellectual understanding of who he is, but coming to him, yielding yourself to him, placing him on the throne of your life. Without him, it's just as, again, you're going to continue to strive for the world and you'll never, ever be satisfied. Verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You know, Jesus knows the heart of every man. You can fool men. You can fool Pastor Dave. You can fool people around you. Judas fooled the other 11 apostles. But will never fool God. God knows the intent of your heart. And he knew the intent of this crowd's heart that stood before him. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me, in the next four verses, Jesus again is going to give the gospel. Pay attention. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will be by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of, Father, of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus explains the process of personal salvation. The Father gives men and women into his hand. And then these men and women must come to him and believe on him. And everyone that comes to him will never be lost. It's interesting, when they fed the 5,000, what did they do after they fed them? It says they went and they gathered up every bit of fragments on the ground so that none was lost. This is a picture of what the bread of life does to us. That no one will be lost that comes to the Lord. Once, I truly believe... Once saved, always saved. But I believe this too, that if we're truly saved, we will always abide in Him. If we truly given our life to Jesus Christ, we will not walk away from Him. We will not deny Him. We will serve Him till the end. Amen? How, which of the apostles were truly saved? Those who were there when He ascended back into heaven and He gave them the command. Judas was not saved. He played the game, but he didn't truly know God. And so, if you're here today, and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he says you'll never be lost. No one will ever snatch you out of his hand. You belong to him. It doesn't matter what happens in your life. It doesn't matter if you lose your job. It doesn't matter if you've been diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't matter what else happens, because God is faithful, and he will never let you go. Well, I'll tell you what, shouldn't we be rejoicing about that? Amen? Shouldn't there be peace in that? Knowing that no matter what else happens, that Almighty God, the creator of the universe, holds me in his hand and he will never ever let me go. What a blessing to know that. And he says, and you have the promise again to be transformed in the life here and now, but also to have the promise of eternity. But look how the people respond to him. That was a pretty simple gospel message. Come to me. Believe on me. Trust in me and I will give you eternal life. How does the crowd respond? 
much like the crowd responds today. Look at verse 41. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The first thing they did was murmur and complain against his message. You ever hear that? Share your faith. I'm talking to my boss, John. He's like, you know what, Dave? I just think God's a more forgiving God than you do. I go, whoa, I don't think so. I know how forgiving our God is. But for there to be forgiveness, there must be repentance. Amen? He will not force forgiveness on anybody. Well, I just think we're all going. Well, if we had one sin in heaven, we'd have earth part two, and that's not going to work. So Jesus came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And the, there, most people say, I don't need the cross. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. I got my own way. And the reality is that if we, we desire our own way, we're going to get our own way in the end. Amen? And so we see here that the Lord is offering eternal life, but they, they respond by complaining and murmuring against our Savior. Verse 42. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? They doubted Jesus. You know why they doubted him? Because they didn't know him. You know what? I know him. I don't just know about him. He's my best friend. He walks with me and he talks with me along the narrow way. Amen? He's always with me. He's with me in my car when I'm driving. He's with me when I'm on sales calls. He's with me at, late at night when I'm sitting down at the church office. I'm studying the Word. He's always with me, and I know Him better than I know my wife or my children. He's my best friend, and I love Him. And you know what's amazing to me, and what breaks my heart, is that these people are right there, and they're standing before the Lord, but they don't know Him. And people who reject Christ reject Him because they do not know who He really is. If they truly understood, they would fall on their face before him and cry out. They knew that he was claiming to be deity, and they thought they knew Jesus, but they only knew about him. They didn't truly understand who he was. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, here we see again, very clearly, both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. He says, I will draw them unto myself, and they will respond. God draws men and women unto himself. The free gift of salvation, it's a gift that is, that is offered universally, but it must be received individually. He offers it to everyone and says, look, I love you. Here's the nail prints in my hands. I suffered and died that you might have eternal life. This belongs to you. Just take it. But he will never force anyone to take it. The sovereignty of God is he knows who will respond, but he never forces anyone to respond. Amen? He gives us that free will and that opportunity to know him. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we see here verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Man's only access to the Father is through the Son. I hear people saying this on TV and stuff all the time, that they went up to heaven and talked to God. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. First of all, if you went to heaven and talked to God, you ain't coming back. Amen? Lord, no, no thanks. If I go up and get to see the glory of Almighty God, the last thing I want to do is come back to this dung heap. Amen? I mean, if I'm in the presence of the creator of the universe, I'd like you to go back and no, 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 I'm staying right here. Amen? And when people say all the time, well, I went and saw God. No, you didn't, because it says in the Bible that no one has seen God at any time. 
Only Jesus. Now, remember in Exodus, you might say, well, Pastor Dave, we just taught in Exodus where, Je- where he went up on the mountain and he saw the, he saw the afterglow or the backside of God. And the word there again is afterglow, like the, what was left, the fragrance or what was left of him after he passed by. And just that afterglow caused Moses to glow in the dark so much when he came down, he had to put a veil over his face. No one has seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, amen? Because Jesus was revealing the Father to mankind. He came in the flesh so that we could see what the Father was like. What's the Father like? He's loving, He's willing to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. How do we know? Because He sent His Son to do that very thing. And so, the Son is the one who reveals to us the heart of the Father. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 47. Is He watering down the message here? Is He kind of going, well, you know, there are many paths. You know, come, hey, we're going to have a Super Bowl party, everybody come on out. Oh, maybe they'll come back next week and I'll tell them the rest of it. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He tells them how they can have everlasting life, and he repeats it over and over and over. You know what? We're Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't he be the example to us of the message that we should share? Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Again, he repeats it. Bread, a basic staple for all nations. Physical bread is what the world, most most nations eat bread. I think virtually every nation does. And you know what? Bread is something we eat continually. Bread is something that most of us never get tired of. And the reality is that bread is something that touches all nations. But here's the reality. Physical bread will not sustain life. But the bread of life, Jesus Christ, will give us eternal life. Verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. I like that. I, you know, I, I shouldn't like it maybe, but I like that. He says, you know what, guys? You know that, mo- that manna stuff you've been talking about? How are those guys doing right about now anyway? That ate that manna. Aren't they dead right about now? That's what I thought. So this manna you're talking about, you want called down from the sky, all it will do is feed you temporally, and in the end, you're going to be dead anyway. So this manna that they call down, they're dead. But you know what? What I've got is not dead bread, not the bread of the dead, but the bread of life. Amen? He says, I'm going to give you bread that will sustain you eternally and not just temporally. But you know what's interesting to me? That manna to me is a very clear picture of our Savior. Look at the verse 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Manna is a picture of Christ. Manna means, what is it? Remember they're crying out and God brought manna and they, and they, called, and they went out and said, what is it? Manna. What is it? That's what manna means. When they saw Jesus, right, they said, who is he? When they looked at manna, they said, what is it? When they saw Jesus, they said, who is he? When did the manna come down? Who remembers? When did it come down? Nighttime. They would go into bed, they'd come out in the morning, and the manna was there. So the manna came down in the darkness to minister to the people. And what did Jesus do? He came down from heaven into the spiritual darkness of this world to minister to the people. Manna was small, pointing to Jesus' humility. It was white, pointing to his purity, and it was round, pointing to the fact that he is eternal without end. Amen? Manna is a picture, a clear picture of Jesus Christ. But the manna was only available to some. And here's who it was available to. Anybody who would reach down and pick it up. 
They came out, and where was the manna? All over the ground. What did they have to do to get the manna? They had to reach down and pick it up. What must we do to receive eternal life? We must simply ask. We must simply respond. You know what? The sad part is those who didn't reach down just trampled on the manna. And those who did not reach out to God are just trampling on what He did for them on the cross. They're just treading across the top of it. That's exactly what happened. As sinners, we nearly need to humble ourselves and receive the gift of God. Manna sustained physical life for the Jews wandering in the wilderness. Jesus, the bread of life, gives everlasting spiritual life to those He delivers from wilderness of sin. Verse 52. The Jews, therefore, now, first of all, they complain. Now what are they going to do? They're going to argue. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he give us his flesh? Now, these are the the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And they begin to say, how can he give us his flesh? And they begin to argue both with the Lord and among themselves. Verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats the bread will live forever. Now this is difficult to understand because if you, if you listen to it from a physical point of view, it sounds gory. Eat my flesh and drink my blood? What is that, a, a bad horror movie? What is that, right? I mean, so from a physical perspective, it's, oh. But what he's talking about, when you look at it from a spiritual point of view, is using a human analogy to convey a spiritual truth. With Nicodemus, what did he tell him? You must be what? Born again. Now, he didn't say, mean, crawl back in your mother's womb and come out a second time, which Nicodemus thought. When he talked to the woman at the well, he told her he would give her living water. But he wasn't talking about water that lived. He was talking about the living water of the Holy Spirit. And here he's talking about them not just knowing about him, but literally taking him into their life. Assimilating Jesus into themselves. You know, when you eat something, it becomes a part of you. Right? It comes into you. And when you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, it's not just knowing about the Lord. It's not just seeing him from a distance. It's not just having a religion where you go to church on Sunday. But it's taking the Lord into your life and making him a part of your life. Putting him on the throne of your life. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. You want to have eternal life? You've got to do more than just know about Jesus Christ. You need to have him assimilated into your body. Not enough, again, just to believe that there is a God, or even that Jesus is the Son of God. It's necessary, again, to bring him into your life. To have a true relationship with Jesus, we must be much more than a casual follower seeking physical provision. We must confess our sin, our desperate need for him, invite him to come in and dwell in our lives and to give him the throne of our lives. Now, sadly, look how they respond, lastly, to this message. These things he said to them at the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Interesting, if you go to Israel with us, I've said in this very synagogue, they've unearthed it, it's there. I've said in the very spot where Jesus taught this message. 
Same place where he healed the man with a withered hand and performed some other miracles. And when we go, we'll sit in that spot and we'll see it happen. And what's interesting to me, Jesus sat there and he taught them this message. And so some people responded by complaining and murmuring against him. Others began to argue with him and amongst themselves. And lastly, look at the response of those closest to him, those he would call his disciples or his followers. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this word, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, Does this offend you? What then if we should see the Son of Man ascend where he has been before? Jewish religious leaders both misunderstood his words and rejected them, and they were offended by what he taught. How many of you have ever shared the love of God with somebody and they were offended by it? Raise your hand. Well, guess what? You're in good company. Amen? Because here is Jesus, the Son of the living God, sharing simple truth to people that he loved so much he was going to die for, and they were offended. Now, if people are offended because of me, woe is me. Amen? But if they're offended because of the gospel, then they need to be offended. Why? Because they need to know that there's a God who does love them. Because God's word does not return void. And they need to hear God's truth. Not watering it down, worrying about offending people. Hey, you know what? If I had a friend on a bus that was driving off a cliff, and it was offensive to him for me to pull him off the bus, I guess I'm going to have to offend him. Amen? There's a man drowning and doesn't want my help. It's offensive to him for me to grab him and pull him out of the water. I guess I'm going to have to offend him. Can I get some water? And so too is the the case here, as the Lord offended them with the truth of the word. What then, if we should see the Son of Man ascend where he has gone before? He, He says, hey, if you're offended because you've heard my words, how much more offended are you going to be when you see me ascending into heaven, where I came from? He said, you're not going to be here when that happens. You're going to miss it. Why? Because you don't believe that I am who I say that I am. Verse 63, we're almost done. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Again, he's making it clear here, he's not talking about his physical flesh. He's saying, look, the words I give you are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. What you need is a spiritual transformation. Now, hey, I work out, my dad and I work out together a couple nights a week, and the Bible says that physical exercise profiteth little. But I think the body, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? I'm not going to get into heaven by how much I bench press. Amen? And we're not going to get there because of how perfect our hair is and how nice we look, though, you know, if the barn needs paint, and paint it, right? I mean, you know, if we need some makeup, whatever, do it. But here's the reality. That's not what's going to get us into heaven. It's that eternal transformation that comes only from within. And it's that, that burden, that passion, the, the flesh is perishing. But if, you know what? If we all were honest and confessed, how much more time do we spend on fleshly pursuits than spiritual ones? Amen? Am I the only one that does that? Don't we do that? Don't we spend more time pursuing after things that are perishing than we do after things that are eternal? Oh man, I can't, you know, I can't be coming to church more than once. We have some friends on too much of my time. What are you doing instead? You know, uh, you know I, can't, I don't want to share my faith at work. I'm not, you know, I mean, that's not really my... Hey, whoa, have an eternal perspective. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Be concerned with and consumed with doing the will of God, not just how you look before men. We need to be transformed from the inside out. Salvation begins on the inside and changes us on the outside, where the world says you've got to be good on the outside so that God will somehow come into the inside. You can't be clean enough for God to be welcomed into your heart. Amen? It's got to be from the inside out. Verse 64. 
But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. The call to a committed walk, not just a fleshly following, resulted in a loss of most of the disciples. They said, you know what? That's too radical. I didn't sign up for that. I want to walk with you and watch you, you know, healing people, but you're telling me you want to rule and reign in my life and be on the throne of my life? You want me to take you in and have you assimilate you into my life? You want me to serve you with my whole heart? You want me to make you the priority of my life? I'm not interested in that. You know, miracles, it's all good. You know, Lord, I like hanging out with you, Jesus. There's always a big crowd around. There's a lot of good stuff happening. It's pretty entertaining. I like hanging out with you. Oh, Eat of your flesh, drink of your blood, assimilate into my... No, uh, I don't want to sign up for that. You know what? My boss said that he thinks that almost everyone will be in heaven. And I told him the reality is that a vast majority of people will not be. And they, it's not because of the lack of God's love or grace. It's because of the, the lack of repentance in the heart of men. It's because men will just walk away and say, Lord, I don't need you. I don't want it. I don't need it. You know, Lord, you want, to, you want me to rule and reign in my life? You know, here's the good news. No one who has ever put Christ on the throne of their life has ever regretted it. Amen? Do you think these people that walked away from the Lord when they stood before Almighty God on Judgment Day were maybe a little bummed? What do you think? Amen? Oh, you know what? That's an eternal mistake. Amen? They walked with Him, they saw the miracles, and they went home back to their old Life. No one can come to me again unless the Father draws him. Last couple of verses. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? You know what this tells me? That maybe these are the only guys that are left. Everybody else bailed. And he turns and looks at his twelve guys. You guys want to leave too? You know, we can start the church over. It's okay. You know what I mean? I'm going to teach the truth and whoever's here is here. Do you guys want to go also? And you know what? For all the things that Peter did, you know, Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, right? Right? Mr. Mr. Go for it, Mr. Chopping people's ears off and doing all kinds of stuff. You got to love the fact that Peter's not afraid to speak up. And God's going to use him filled with the Spirit later because look what Peter says. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He didn't say you have the miracles of eternal life. You have the programs of eternal life. You've got the, the fat guy getting shot in the stomach with the cannonball on Wednesday nights. He didn't say that. He said you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go but to you? And you know what, guys? Where else can we go? There's nowhere. The only place we can find hope is in Him and in Him alone. Are you guys going to leave? Yet sadly, most who hear the word rejected and walk away, leading to destruction. Last three verses. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. He said, we've come to believe and to know. Christianity is not a hope so. Amen? When you talk to people, are you going to heaven? Oh man, I sure hope so. That's not a good sign. Amen? Here's the reality. I told my bosses, he said, oh, you can't know, you're, you can't know that you're going. I, yeah, I do. I know. Oh, will you believe? No, I don't believe. I believe and I know. Amen? You know how I know? The Bible says when you give your life to Him, that He gives you a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you. Amen? How many of you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven? Raise your hand. Praise the Lord. And if you don't know, you don't have to leave here without Him. 
Amen? The American Express card you can leave at home, but don't leave earth without Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, we want to know Him. Him crucified and risen from the dead. That's what it's all about. And so we need to know Him. And He says there, I believe and know. Man, I like that. You can know for sure. I'm so glad that Christianity's not a hope so. I'm so glad I'm not like the Jehovah's Witnesses out working this afternoon, hoping I do enough good stuff that God will weigh the scale in my favor on Judgment Day and I might be one of the 144,000. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're not down at Kmart logging hours hoping to win God's approval? Aren't you glad you're not out trying to do things that so somehow God will love you? Aren't you glad that he said, Tetalistai on the cross? It is finished. Paid in full. You're going. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? You can believe and know, not believe and hope. Verse 70, Jesus said, Do I not choose the twelve? And one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. The only thing that Peter said that was wrong is he used the wrong pronoun. He said, we believe and know, when he should have said, I believe and know, because there's one in that we who didn't believe and didn't know. And he had fooled Peter, but he didn't fool Jesus. Amen? He said, you know what? There's one among you who's of the devil. All right? The worship team will come on up. So let me ask you a question. God knows the truth of every heart here this morning. Maybe you're like the disciples who followed Jesus for some time, but never truly given your life to Him. You may fool man, but you won't fool God. You may have known about God here. Don't miss heaven by 18 inches. The difference between here and here. You can't just know about God, you must know God. You know what, if you're here this morning, again, divine appointment, God brought you here. I was praying for you guys last night. I prayed for those who are going to be here for the first time and it was a divine appointment and God brought you here. I want you to know that God knows and He loves you and He prepared this message for, for the foundation of the world to minister to your heart. And if there's even one person here this morning that's known about God or has been hungering for God, has been trying to find the answer in all other places in the world, I want you to know that you can receive Christ by simply responding to the message that He shared with this crowd. Don't respond by murmuring and complaining. Don't respond by arguing. Don't respond by walking away. Respond by simply saying, yes, I want Jesus to be my Savior. You will never, ever regret it. Amen? It will be the, it's the most important decision you'll ever make in your lifetime. And so we see again that the Jews murmured, the disciples followed Him no more, but Peter believed and knew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You are the bread of life. And we thank You, Lord, that life eternal doesn't come from the works of men, but that perfect work that You did on the cross. And Lord, I do pray for everyone in this room this morning, that Lord, if there's even one person here that does not know You, that has a hope-so religion, or maybe they're just visiting because a friend brought them and had never really examined their heart about their relationship with You, I pray, Lord, they would take this opportunity, this divine appointment, to make a commitment to you the way that you made a commitment to them. And Father, I just pray, Lord, you draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit. So as every head's bowed, you got, if, you're, if you know the Lord, be praying for those who don't. The Bible says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. You're not joining a church. We don't want your money. You're not joining a country. All you're doing is saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Sin is separation from God, and we've all sinned. Now you just say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. And if you raise your hand, all I'm going to do is pray a simple prayer with you. And you can walk out of here knowing that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that you're going to heaven. You can believe and know before you leave here this morning. If there's anybody here at all, I just want you to raise your hand, and I want to pray with you. Is there anybody at all? 
Don't let the enemy win. I know there's a few people here that don't know. God bless you. Is there anybody else? Believe and know for sure that you're going to heaven. You don't want to be standing before God one day and have him bring this up on film and say, here was an opportunity, and you walked away. The Lord loves you guys so much. Anybody else? Let's pray. Just repeat after me, every one of you. Dear Heavenly Father, come to you this morning, and I confess that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I ask you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. I believe that through your shed blood, my sin is paid for. Thank you for coming into my life. I now believe and know that I'm going to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Let's stand and close the worship song.